You're listening to the Auxiliary Gate Podcast, Kentucky's weekly horse racing discussion. And now, here are your hosts, Alan Schneider. Brandon Jaggers. Jeff Riggs. But it's oh so sharp for six to four favorite. Steve Gawthorn Henry Cecil on a real eye this week. It's oh so sharp who wins the gold two legs. And me, CC Broadus. The auxiliary gate. Big problem. Friends, and welcome to episode number 169 of the Auxiliary Gate podcast. I'm CC Broadus, and I'm joined by my mainstay, the co host, the king of horse racing social media. I'm talking about none other than Alan Schneider. <laughs> uh, king of social media. Let's, I wouldn't go there. I, I kind of stay away from a lot of the social media horse racing stuff, but. It is nice, you know. It's just me and you today. It's old school, right? Old school. No, no rigs, no jag. So we're uh, we're gonna play Jeff, this just two of us tonight. Jeff Riggs couldn't be with us. I think he's at home stroking his beard. <laughs> I, I don't even think there. we. I don't even think we even invited Brandon. We probably Sorry, did. Brandon. I can't remember. I don't either. Anyway, let's, oh, our, let's... our 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 guest tonight so special. It, it, it requires us to. Uh, uh, two-person team tonight, so we'll see. We'll get to that shortly. Let's get into some news and notes. Uh, Turfway canceled over the weekend. I just thought of this. Wasn't there a derby prep that was supposed to be run Saturday? The Leonidas? The Leonidas, yes, yeah. What happened? That that wasn't re- was that not rescheduled? I I didn't look. That I I can't answer that. I, I don't know uh, off the top of my head. I, I just assumed it was. Could be completely wrong. I know they're adding a race per night to, to help out, but uh, I guess when you start canceling, when you get to these derby preps, I mean, they got a tight schedule, so I'm not sure what they're doing. I guess I should have asked one of those mainstays up there in Florence about that, but I didn't think about it. Okay, wait, 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 wait. I got it here. So we're going to reschedule it. Oh, good, good. We're going to reschedule it at a further date, at a later date. Maybe it's next week. I don't know. But anyway, so, all right, that's good news. Uh, now, we're recording this on Friday night, so obviously a big race tomorrow. A lot of people's going to listen to this. We'll already know who won the Pegasus World Cup. Uh, uh, Alan, I'm assuming you had the winner. <laughs> yes, of course. If you're listening to this afterwards, honestly, I probably didn't bet the race because I'll be, I was busy all day on Saturday or tomorrow. Uh, but, you know, uh, it's not really as interesting to me as some people, so uh, we'll see. Next weekend, I've got four derby preps. I don't know the names of all of them. The Southwest is at Oakland. Uh, there's a race at, at California. I know the Aqua, maybe at Aqueduct. I don't know. I, I, I had all this written down. I've lost it. And then the Wouldn't uh, Aqueduct be the Jerome or the, is that what that would be? Could be the Jerome or the Withers, maybe, or something like that. Withers and then you've got the Sam F, Sam F, excuse me, Sam F. Davis at Tampa Bay Downs. Uh, that leads me into my question of the week for you, Alan. 
your favorite Sammy Davis movie? <laughs> oh boy, there's so many. I can think of so many off the top of my head. Oh man, I'm not that old. Um, can I step out and just make it a TV show where he was on All in the Family and kissed Archie Bunker? That was kind of legendary, right? Can I just go with that? Was he? He wasn't uh, on the permanent cast of All in the Family, was he? No, but he guest starred. He was I would like, just say that that is one I would remember. Oh, okay. I'm terrible. But, yeah, you remember that, right? Which – right, he was in Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. Which uh, which version of Ocean's Eleven do you prefer? Older uh, since I never saw the first the, the first one, I guess I'll have to go with the second. The stylishly – uh, stylishly done remake with George Clooney and Brad Pitt and Elliot Gould and a cast of thousands. So give me that one. Yeah, I, I agree. I've actually seen both. I saw the first one. It's uh, it's okay, but it's you know it's cool because it's all the famous people are in it. Rat all pack. The, the Rat Pack Rat, and Rat Pack. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Idiot. Uh, what's the guy from Three's Company? The the landlord. He was in it. Norman Fell. Norman Fell was he? He wasn't a member of the, the Rat Pack, was he? I don't know how that worked out. Like I said, I'm old, but that's like Joey Bishop and Dean Martin and Sammy Davis right. and yeah. Sinatra and Brandon Jaggers. All those guys are in it. Yeah. <laughs> Brandon Jaggers, yes. Yeah. Getting all the ladies with with their martinis. Uh, let's talk NFL real quick, then we'll get to our guests. Uh, Baltimore, Kansas City. This is the battle of good versus evil. Of course, Lamar Jackson represents the free world. The Chiefs represent evil and everything that's wrong with society. And two God. more weeks, two more weeks of Taylor Swift talk and banter. Who you got, Ravens, Chiefs? I, you know, the Taylor Swift stuff doesn't bother me. I don't know what people make such a big deal. They show her a few times in the stands. She's supporting her man. I, I think, I think uh, Travis Kelsey bothers me more than Taylor Swift does, and Mahomes bothers me more than the other two. He's turned, he's turned a bit of a. A bit of a whiner, hasn't he? Although he's a tremendous player. Give me Baltimore. I was never a big Baltimore fan, but I do like John Harbaugh. Lamar's easy to pull for. And the times I've watched him this year, they seem complete. I know the Chiefs have peaked a little bit in the playoffs, but there's still flaws there. Baltimore's closest thing to a team, you know, at least on that side of the – in the AFC that, that, that doesn't have flaws. So I'll give me Baltimore by a touchdown. What about you? Yep. Um, well, I don't – I don't know about betting the game, but I'm going to pull for. Yeah, we can bet it. I bet I like to see Baltimore win. Yeah, and then 49ers Lions. Uh, I like a lot of people. I mean, it's hard not to love Dan Campbell and and Jared Goff and and the whole cast of the Lions. I think they're obviously a great story. They're a lot of fun to watch. My concern with them, uh, even though I would like to see them, and I like both teams. I really do like the 49ers. I really do like the Lions. My concern is like the Lions are now leaving Detroit. Right? They've been playing. Uh, their first two games in that very loud, raucous indoor stadium. Now going out to the West Coast playing outdoors. And I believe I saw a stat the other day that one of the, only one of their last 11 games has been played outdoors. That is an amazing statistic that they've just been playing in domes for like the last two thirds of the season. Now they're going to be playing outdoors against a, a, a San Francisco team that is loaded on offense with a lot of weapons. I don't know if Debo Samuel's playing. Yeah, I'd like to see the Lions win. I, it, it's probably going to be Baltimore or San Francisco, but. I, I worry about Detroit going out and playing outdoors out in the West Coast. You? Uh, yeah, I'd lean to to the 49ers. I haven't seen the Lions play a whole lot this year, though. They're but fun to watch, have... and they're a great story. And, you know, the, the, the karma owes them uh, a nice time, and their fans deserve something. But, again, we'll see. Uh, it's, that's a pretty good San Francisco team. All right. 
here we go. It's time for our special guest. And uh, without further ado, Alan, you do the honors. Yeah, thank you, Cece. I'm going to have to get my reading glasses on for this one because uh, our guest tonight, uh, it's not he does not deserve to be messed up with this introduction. Uh, uh, true legends of horse racing, like I mentioned, our guest tonight, they, they don't need a fawning introduction. But in, in this case, I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, in this particular instance, just days after this man's uh, 18th birthday, the kid, as he was affectionately known way back in the day, stormed into the American limelight by not only winning the 1978 Kentucky Derby aboard the legendary Affirmed, but the entire Triple Crown as well, each time besting his legendary rival, Alidar. Um, a highly successful career soon followed in Europe with numerous classic wins, and tonight it, it's a legitimate honor for us at the Auxiliary Gate Podcast to welcome in 1977's Associated Press Athlete of the Year. Of course, I'm talking about Steve Cawthon. Thank you so much for joining us, Steve. Oh, it's a pleasure, Alan. Good, good, to, good to be on. Well, we, we really do appreciate it. Uh, as I said, um, because it is an honor, and I probably should begin with, uh, before all else, uh, before all else is thanking our mutual friend, Farron Peterson, who got the two of us together to, to pull this off. So we want to thank her for putting us in touch with you. And, you know, she's awesome. I'm, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. So we want to thank Farron first and foremost. Absolutely. No, she's a, she's a great young writer and, and a vet. And, you know, she's an amazing young lady. Um, I'm a big fan. Yeah, well, we are too. So we want to make sure she gets her recognition for getting this together for us. So um, before we talk, uh, walk, take a walk down memory lane, let's, let's talk a bit about last night at Turfway because mm-hmm. you own horses. You know, you own, you, for those who don't know, uh, Steve has Dreamfield Farm where he lives and he's got a horse farm there. And one of his runners last night uh, just missed at Turfway yep. Park in a maiden special weight. Great ride by Farron, as a matter of fact. Uh, I mean, nothing more you can ask for. A great front end ride by her. The horse's name is Heart Headed Woman. Just yes. missed at the wire in a, in a nice effort. And, uh, I'll let you talk about the horse a little bit, but I also believe, if I'm not mistaken, that that horse is named after, means a little something to you because it was named after somebody pretty important to you, right? Uh, yeah, my lovely bride, um, Amy. Um, you know, the filly, uh, has a heart on her head and that's, you know, the heart. And, uh, you know, so it's kind of a, <laughs> you know, a, uh, my wife is a lovely woman, but, you know, like a lot of women who are very, like, what is that, what is that, that old song? Uh, I'm looking for a hard-headed woman. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I got, I got one. <laughs> and, uh, so it's kind of a, you know, mixture of the two. But, uh, anyway, um, you know, we've, we've had, she, she's a five-year-old, just turned five. She, you know, as a two-year-old, she had a little injury right towards the end of her first, you know, her two-year-old year. We stopped on her head to, you know, deal with that. And then, you know, she didn't really get started till March or April of that year, kind of got going and then had another little setback. So, you know, really she never ran until she was a four-year-old. And, you know, she's run eight times and she's had three seconds and a, and a third. Um, you know, she's, she's done quite well, but, you know, we, we seem to keep finding, you know, we run into a Godolphin horse or, uh, you know, something mm-hmm. always come up. But, but last night I was really, pre- you know, she does, she's continuing to get better. You know, she's trying hard. It looks, it appears like she's learning the game. And when, you know, now she really seems to, 
you know, put her best foot forward. And Farron's ridden her the whole time and uh, has ridden her well all the time. But like a lot of things, you know, you learn about them and you try to figure out how to ride them best. And uh, last night I thought Farron gave her a fantastic ride and the filly, you know, dug in and tried and just, you know, found one too good. But it was uh, it was exciting and uh, I could I walked away feeling, you know, proud and happy about the, the evening, even though we yeah. got beat. Yeah, she looked gone at the top of the stretch. I thought she was gone, but uh, I think the Byron Hughes horse got her at the wire. But like you said, really good effort. She's like an ATM. She's paying the bills, and there's another maiden exactly. race around the corner, right? Exactly, yeah. Hopefully we'll be back there you know, pretty soon. Well, you know, that's our um, that's our appetizer. It's it's time. It, we've got Steve Coffin on. It, it's time to take a, a trip down memory lane uh, to that magical decade of the 70s. I mean, you probably know where I'm headed with this. I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, but not by the Auxiliary Gate podcast. Uh, 1976 uh, is, is I went back and did a little research, right? 16-year-old mm-hmm. kid. You were a 16-year-old kid. Rode your first race at a track near near where you live called River yes. Downs. Ran Back, the first race I rode was at um, at Churchill. Oh, at Churchill, really? My well, first few races were at Churchill, which I didn't win any at the beginning. And then my uncle, after I'd ridden about five races, called me and said, I've got a horse, Tom Bischoff, my uncle, my mom's yeah. brother, um, said, I've got a horse that I think's got a chance if you want to come ride him. And I said, heck, yeah. Um, yeah I was kind of starting to wonder if I knew how to ride because – <laughs> I couldn't get any of these things anywhere close to the you know front. And uh, this one was called Red Pipe. Uh, I went up and rode him. He was like probably it was a five and a half furlong race in the mud, and probably after the first furlong and a half, he was probably twenty lengths behind. And but you know then he kind of kicked in gear and came coming like uh, Silky Sullivan and made a big sweeping run and. One by two, and uh, so that was the beginning of it. Yeah, that's uh, the beginning of it because it's like I know you get your first one, River Downs, like you said, uh, not exactly, you know, Santa Anita, right, or no. Saratoga, but no. from that, I, I guess it's a humble beginning, right? I'm sure you never forget your first. I mean, the thing about it is the strat—it's the stratospheric takeoff from that point. At that moment when you won that race, River Downs. Did you know what the next year or two held for you? Did you have any idea what the next couple of years were, were like were going to be like for Steve Cawthon, or are you just trying to get that next mount? Oh yeah, absolutely. I had no idea. Um, you know, really, I think my goal at that point was to someday, and obviously, I wasn't thinking you know that uh, you know like that I would maybe be leading rider at River Downs, and you know, within two months, I was leading rider at River Downs by about 20, you know, <laughs> uh, and, you know, you know, the thing about River Downs is that, you know, it is, a, it's a small track, it's not, you know, but uh, it's hard to make it there, you know, it's hard to make it uh, as anywhere, it's, uh, you know, you're riding, against, there's st- there was still some pretty good jockeys back in the day, I mean, I was riding against a guy called uh, Guillermo Malord, who was a, you know, really, he was a top class rider, he just, Unfortunately, I guess he had weight problems, and you know that was where, you know, he wrote, you know, he decides, you know, he lands, and he, you know, he was riding for a good stable there, and but I mean, there were some some pretty solid riders, and um, you know, it's it's uh it's not as easy, you know, it's just it's not like a, you know, it's not like it's not hard to win races even at River Downs. So, um, 
you know, but I did, like you say, I, I wrote, a, I wrote that winner for my uncle. The next day I wrote a winner for my mom. The next day I wrote a winner for a guy named Dean Loring. And that, I think those were the only rides I had, one on each of those days. And after that, I was getting offered five and six mounts in every race, you know, it was like everybody wanted me. So I was then getting the picks of, you know, a lot of rides. And then, you know, obviously I was, I was winning. So, um, I think I won 120 races in about two and a half months. And it's amazing. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was, it was fun. It was exciting. It was exactly what I was wanting to do. And, you know, like you say, I, I had no idea that it was all going to happen that quick, you know? That is amazing. I guess you wrote against Perry Utes. That just shows you how time goes. Perry Utes, Bernie Saylor, which was another, you know, he was another, you know, very successful guy back in that time. Homer Hildalgo, you know, uh, a bunch of, you know, a bunch of good, good riders that, you know, obviously some of them had weight problems or whatever, but, you know, which might, you know, was why maybe they ended up there. But, you know, there's been a lot of really good riders that, you know, one time or another, uh, Larry Snyder rode at Riverdown yes. back day. Um, you know, there's, there's been some pretty good riders that have been there. So, you know, it was, uh, it was a great, it was a great grounding, you know, starting place for me, for sure. Um, I felt like I learned a lot and then, you know, kind of was ready to take the next step, which is when I went to Chicago. I went to Chicago for two months and, you know, or, for you know, a couple months of the Arlington meet and one month at Hawthorne came back to Churchill Downs for the fall meet there where I did very well. I, I actually started winning races there and finished second in the standings to Donnie Bromfield, who was, you know, forever the and ever. Winner the himself. He wanted yeah, to forever and ever the leading rider there, you know, many, many times. And it was, um, it was then that, you know, I, I kind of was trying to figure out what I should do. You know, should I go to Florida? Or should I go to try New York, you know? And I asked him, I asked Donnie and uh, Eddie Delahousse, you know, they were together. And I just kind of walked up to them and I said, you know, what do you think, you know, what would you do? And they both said to me, you know, the winter is a good time to, you know, go try to make it in New York because, you know, a lot of the good riders go south, you know? Mm-hmm. So that made my mind up and that's why I chose to go to New York. But that, that winter... Cordero, Velasquez, Kruger, and Ronnie Turcott all stayed up there. <laughs> now wow. they you know, they weren't obviously as hungry. You know, like I was, you know, wanting to ride in every race. They were, you know, picking and choosing their mounts, but but they were still there. They hadn't gone south for some reason. I don't know why. But the good thing was that it allowed me to ride with them and you know learn a lot. You know, I was learning a lot. So um, I got off to a good start there, and then you know the rest is kind of you know history it just kind of took off for me so you know uh, correct me if i'm wrong i mean the horse for those who don't know uh steve was named athlete of the year by ap and, and sports illustrated but that was in 77 the year before affirmed right i mean that correct me if i'm wrong on that is that correct was that was that 77. yeah it was 77 so you go from winning your first race in 76 at river downs and all of a sudden that's the boy Brandon gotten affirmed yet you're yeah, the athlete of the year. I mean, that's, that's mind blowing. Correct? I have to. T- I gotta tell you a funny story about this because I think you know. Again, you know, you'll appreciate this. But so in 1977, I was I was voted Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year, and uh, the two people I beat were 
in the voting where Muhammad Ali was second, I think, and, and Reggie Jackson was third. Exactly. <laughs> so years and years go by, you know, I go to Europe, come back, whatever. I don't remember exactly what year it was, but I was, I was invited to go up to Baltimore to, for this card signing. Me, myself, and Kruger, and a, you know, Cordero, I think, a couple other jockeys were asked to go to this, you know, big, you know, event that was, you know, where we were going to be signing pictures, cards, whatever, you know, people wanted. And, uh, it was in this Baltimore uh, convention center, which was huge. <laughs> I've never seen anything as big as this place. And, uh, there was everything there. There was, you know, World Series trophies and all kinds of stuff. Anyway, at the end of, uh, my side, I was just walking around looking at, you know, in awe of all the different stuff that was around the place. And I look over and I see Reggie Jackson. And I thought to myself, you know, I've never met him. I'd like to go say hi. So I walk over and I say, hi, Mr. Jackson. I mean, I'm, my name's Steve Cawthon. And, you know, I used to be up in New York when you were, you know, doing your World Series, you know, home run stuff and all that jazz. And, you know, we were talking, having a nice, you know, casual, enjoyable, you know, chat. And then uh, this this basketball player walked by. And I can't remember his name, but Reggie goes, hey, Jim, come over here, you know. I'm making Jim's, you know, making up the gotcha. name. But, Jim, come over here, you know. I want you to meet this guy. And he says, uh, Jim. He said, this is Steve Cawthon. He said, uh, I'll tell you. He said, I had two chances to win Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year. In 1973, uh, you know, so-and-so horse beat me. And then they and in 78, this little so-and-so beat me. <laughs> he said, I'm not sure if I like horse racing. <laughs> you know, but it was just funny. But, it's a good uh, field you beat. You know, I know you yeah, want to yeah. beat a good so, field in the Derby, but you beat a good field that year. Yeah, so it was pretty fun. It's amazing. But anyway. It's amazing. Time to get to Affirmed and Aladar. Uh, I'm trying to think, you know, I know you've been asked about Affirmed and Aladar a million times, right? Uh, I'm sure, you know, you don't mind answering the questions. Uh, it's no, a special time in your life, but try to come up with something a little more unique. Um, and one thing that come to my mind is in those three races, you won the triple crown, you beat Aladar each time by diminishing margins. And we'll get to the last one here in a second. But, uh, when you were in those races, maybe not so much in the Derby, but it may be in the Preakness or Belmont, were you, when you were riding in those races, mm-hmm. were you always cognizant? Did you worry about all the other horses or were you just, for the most part, cognizant about where Alidar was and when he was going to move, or how did that work? I mean, what was your strategy? I guess is what I'm asking. Well, I mean, obviously, I, I always, you know, totally respected Alidar the most, you know, of any of the, you know, my rivals. But um, believe it was a really good horse. Um, Darby Creek Road was a good horse. Sensitive Prince was a good horse. So it wasn't like you know we were the only two, you know. So I knew we were the best, but Obviously, if something, of course, you know, horse races are horse races, right? They, we horses, see it all the time. Yeah, I think uh, Bob Baffert said horses beat horses, and yeah, no truer words have ever been said. You know, on a given day, uh, you know, stuff can happen. So, yeah, I was, um, you know, I was always very aware of uh, the other horses, but mainly Aladar, and uh, you know. In the Derby, uh, um, you know, I got everything kind of went great. I had, there was, you know, a couple speed horses and 
I ended up sitting in the perfect spot third, you know, behind a 45 pace, you know, and I was just kind of waiting. And then all of a sudden, believe it kind of made me move a lot sooner than I wanted to. But, you know, it was like it was like he was cruising. So, I, you know, I wasn't going to stop him, you know, so. Um, and then he kind of pushed me into the stretch and then, but then I was, you know, really thinking Aladar is going to be coming here, but he kind of didn't show up until the last second that day. So it was kind of a good thing. I think it probably, you know, helped in the long run for, you know, because it, uh, although, you know, any triple crown race is somewhat tough. It's not, it wasn't the, the toughest, you know, right. That got to Pimlico and, you know, they had, you know, worked Aladar in 109, you know, which was great, but, you know, Jeez. we knew that they were going to get, you know, they were planning on getting more, you know, involved a little, you know, earlier. They weren't going to, you know, they obviously, you know, were going to try to challenge us a little bit sooner than, than that. And, um, obviously that's what happened, but, you know, I was able to, um, it was a smaller field. I was able to break out and, in the end, I set the pace, and that was, you know, I was doing my own thing and um, slowed the pace down early on. Then, you know, when Aladar kind of moved up to push it, and it all kind of, you know, I just kind of gradually let him pick up. But, you know, I was still just waiting for Aladar, really, and uh believe it kind of started to move, but, you know, never really got to me. And at the head of the stretch, Aladar got there, or just, you know, before the head of the stretch. And, you know, we really, I mean, I think that was the fastest last three sixteenths of a mile ever run in the Preakness. Um, we flew home that day. But that day, I always, you know, like, even when Aladar was there, and uh, I, I just felt like I always knew I had him that day. You know, it's like, I affirm just, you know, he was always kind of doing it well within himself. I mean, when I say well within himself, he was digging in, but. He had him, you know, it wasn't a question. I I wasn't afraid we were going to get beat that day. But then, you know, when we obviously got to the Belmont, which to me was probably one of the greatest races of all time. No question. No question. Just because of what was on the line and, you know, two great horses and just a great, you know, finish. Uh, well, you know, great seven furlong battle. But part of that was tactical, you know. I mean, uh, it was a small field, and basically in that race, it was just me and Aladar. Darby Creek Road was in the race, but, you know, uh, but he wasn't, you know, we, at that point, by that point, we obviously all knew we were better than them if, you know, as long as our horses ran the race, and they always seemed to continue to do that. So, you know, Aladar was on the inside, so I broke, my horse always broke good, and I pretty much just left the rail open because, you know, going into that first turn, because I knew Aladar didn't like to come on the, he didn't like the inside. You know, I knew that from Laurel when I beat him up there as a two-year-old. And um, so I just, you know, sat out there, you know, kind of, and I was, that made, allowed me to slow the pace down, you know, knowing that he wasn't going to go up in there. Nobody else ended up, you know, pushing me that much because nobody else, you know, all they were trying to do was, you know, try to finish third, you know. And, um so I was able to slow the pace down. So Georgie eventually pulled back and, you know, went, got to where you could get on the outside. And, and then finally he got, you know, like, you know, we're crawling here. So, you know, he kind of rushed up to the outside at the seven furlongs pole. And, you know, 
I mean, like I've never, you know, you really don't hear much on the horse because you're so focused and, you know, but, and particularly you don't hear it on the backside and especially the backside of Belmont because it's so far away. But there was, you know, 65,000 people in the stands and, and I just, you know, when, when I could, all of a sudden a great roar came up in the crowd because they saw Aladar, you know, Georgie was trying to move up to challenge me, you know, they're like, it's on, you know, and, uh, but of course, when he came up there, I also knew Aladar, there's no way Aladar wants to go to the front seven furlongs out, you know, mm-hmm. I look over at Georgie like, hey, man, if you want to go, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, we weren't talking or anything, but I was just like, yeah, go ahead. If you want to go, I'll just sit behind you. And, but he didn't obviously want to go. So we were just kind of cat and mousing it down the backside, you know, until, you know, obviously at some point, you know, about, I don't know, maybe the just inside the five eights or whatever, we, the pace started quickening up, you know, and, uh, and then it just kept quickening and quickening, you know, and like by the time we got to the quarter pole, you know, he was riding me close and tight and, you know, I could kind of feel a firm kind of a little bit, you know, kind of, he felt a little bit like fatigued, you know, like, you know, I mean, like I was getting a little bit worried, like, oh, crap, you know, mm-hmm. I just knew, like, you know, we're going to have to, you know, dig deep today, boy. And um Aladar was, you know, we were head and head. And I think it, you know, the call was like, Aladar gets ahead in front. Well, I didn't I think know. he did. I was going to ask I you, didn't he get in front? I think he got to me. You know, I think we were like head and head, but I don't know that he actually really got by me or if he did, it was, you know, a millimeter or two, you know. But uh, that's when I hit left, uh, hit a firm left-handed for the first time ever, and you know, he just like kind of bounced back, you know, and all of a sudden it was like he was back, you know, it's like it revived him or whatever. He like all of a sudden he was back digging in and trying to, you know, and I realized that you know, like I think we got, you know, we, I mean, like I, I wasn't thinking too, I was just riding, you know. Hell or high, you know, every as hard as I could, and just trying to get home. But if you know, looking back, he's like, like you know, once he got his head back in front of, he was just, he was not going to get beat. And uh, that was, you know, it was a great race. It was uh, the great thing about, you know, from my point of view, was like, you know, when you realize after a race that there's not one thing I could have done wrong, and still have won that race you know right i mean i really it's like you know you kind of feel like you rode the perfect race the whole i mean of course the horse you know gave everything and did you know and responded and you know he, the horse is the one doing the running but you know it's like you know we really pulled off you know the the whole deal by first pretty much getting the perfect 10 you know so when you hit the wire i'm gonna kick us a cc here in a second but when you hit the wire, and it was a full nose, I want to say you won by. You knew you won, right? Did you know you won? Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. why I raised my hand, you know, awkwardly. Yeah. But, you know, I was like, you know, I didn't know what to do. And I just you know, kind of lifted up my left arm, you know, even though Laz gave me hell for it later on. <laughs> does, but, uh, does, a, does a firm get the kind of recognition that he should? I don't Going think back so. in history? I don't think so. But, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, how many, what, how many horses have won 11 or 12 grade ones, you know? Yeah, it's, um, I don't think people realize past that three-year-old year what the career he had. And right. He and Eldar hooked up 10 times. It wasn't just three. 
Right. Seven to three affirmed. Two-year-old and a three-year-old, yeah. And then, you know, Aladar got hurt, but, you know, but then he was taken on spectacular bid, right? And, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I wasn't there anymore. I was over in Europe, but, you know, he, uh, you know, and that's kind of like when people say, you know, like in the Marlboro Cup, he beat me by three lengths. The Seattle Slew beat me by three lengths. And, you know, I just think it was, you know, like a, when you put two great whatever it is, you know, or two even four year if you you know, if you put a four year old and a three year old together that were, you know, eventually would be whatever you know, a certain level, the four year old has an advantage because he's it's really, you know, in my mind, like a twenty five year old guy running against an eighteen year old kid, you know? Mm-hmm. The three year old's like an eighteen year old kid. The the other guy's like a twenty five year old you know, the four year old's like a twenty five year old guy. Mm-hmm. And the next year when when a firm was running against spectacular bid who was you know an equally talented horse he beat him and the next year when there wasn't one around spectacular bid blew everybody out you know nobody would take him on i think he had a walk he had one walkover because nobody wanted to even get in the gate with him you know good point good point cc i'm guessing you want to crack at the legendary steve coffin yeah i got like a thousand questions here i'm gonna try to limit this because I know he's got a life. I, I don't. But, uh, <laughs> I haven't got that much of a life. <laughs> First of all, I did some digging. Is this true? I, I didn't know if it was true or not. In 1977, you won the Eclipse Award for Outstanding Apprentice Rider and Outsta- Outstanding Jockey in the same year. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's something that probably doesn't happen that, a whole lot. That year for the Award of Merit or whatever it was? Yeah, I got three eclipses that year. Um, so you, you got a third award too. Then you won. You said yeah. you won the okay. Wow. You know, like I don't know what the, whatever they give to the somebody that they I guess they say did the most for racing that year. You know, um, right? Won three eclipses in one year. I know Axel Concepcion won the uh, the eclipse for apprentice rider mm-hmm. yeah. last yeah. night. He's, yeah. you know, he's a great rider. He's a great young rider, but he's like miles away. I mean, just, just years and years away, it seems from being an outstanding, uh, uh, just to, to win like an outstanding jockey award like you did. That's, that's, that's incredible just to think about. But, uh, first of all, after you won the triple crown here, you eventually left for Europe. What was the main reasons that you decided to leave us and go, go to England? Well, you know, um, I mean, the weirdest thing is, you know, life is funny. Um, so in June, I won the Triple Crown. In August, I got hurt in a spill at Saratoga. Um, I missed riding affirmed in the Travers. And, of course, I was, you know, wanting to get back and ride him. So, you know, I didn't want to miss out, you know. And I kind of probably pushed myself back maybe a little sooner than I should, you know, but I, you know, obviously, you know, you're, yeah, I mean, I, I felt terrible being in the stands. What, you know, I wanted to be on him. So anyway, I, I did ride him in the Marlboro and I was, you know, that was kind of, uh, he, um, finished second, you know, of course at that point, you know, some people were saying, Oh, you know, Steve did this or Steve did that. You know, anyway, I didn't worry about it because I knew I didn't in my mind, you know, it was just, Seattle Slough was a was a great horse and and uh I pretty much through the years have come to the conclusion that like you say, uh 
if you got two champions and one's a three-year-old, one's a four-year-old, the four-year-old's going to have an advantage. Um, and, you know, because horses really aren't mature until they're almost five years old. So, um, but anyway, and then, you know, just things kind of never went right for me after that, you know. Um, I never, it took, it just kind of, we went out to California that winter and like my agent Lenny had just had a heart attack, you know. And uh, Laz's horses, you know, for me, just weren't, they were running good, but they weren't quite, you know, 100, you know, it wasn't just, everything wasn't clicking on all cylinders. And of course, once I started losing some races, you know, I have not, you know, I'm not, I, I lost my confidence to some degree, you know, it was like, because I had, you know, everybody's like, if I wasn't winning three races every day, you know, there was something wrong with Steve Cawson, you know? So it was, uh, you know, it was just kind of a multiple of things, but. Anyway, at the end of the 110 race losing streak, when I finally won a few races, and I was totally determined to just work my way through it, and you know, I'd already lost the mount on the firm at that point. <clears throat> at that point, and um, um, but I got out of the blue an offer from Robert Sangster to come over and ride, you know, for him in England, and. Um, you know, they offered me a really good deal. So that was the first thing that happened. Then, you know, I wasn't really sure. You know, I was like, I, you know, I, I had seen the previous summer, actually, you know, like in June, I'd been asked to go ride a horse called Hawaiian Sound by Sangster in the Epsom Derby. But, but it was like three days before the Belmont Stakes, you know, that I won on Affirmed, and I just wasn't willing to take the chance to go ride in that race and get jet lagged or whatever and not be a hundred percent for the, for the Belmont. So I turned them down. Well, instead they got Shoemaker to come over and he rode a wine sound and he, and of course, because he was there, they showed it on worldwide world of sports or whatever. And that was the first really time I ever saw a race in Europe and uh Shoemaker dead and there won the race, you know, he got beat on neck. And that really opened my eyes to, you know, European racing. And so obviously this time when they came to me and, and that's the horse that they really were wanting me to, you know, come ride because Barry Hills had a lot of horses for, for Robert Sangster. I mean, O'Brien had a bunch in your, in Ireland, but Robert, uh, Robert had a lot of horses with Barry in England. And, um, they also, he had a wine sound and, and Barry had other horses for other trainers. So every other owners. So, you know, after thinking about it, and I had dinner with Robert, my father and I had dinner with him, and he said, he like sitting across the table, he said, Steve, you know, you're going to end up needing to come to Europe anyway in the long run because of your weight. And, you know, I realized my weight hasn't been a problem for me up to that point, but, you know, in the meantime, from like, you know, when I, when I won the triple crown on the firm i probably weighed 95 pounds but in the meantime from then till you know the fall or whatever i had put on some weight even though you know it was just probably natural maturity you know filling out a little bit and whatever um and uh i realized that he was right that in the long run i was probably gonna struggle to keep riding in america with you know the weights being one you know like the lightest you you can, or the heaviest you can ride at in America, you know, and be successful was probably 116 or so, 117. 
Um, and, uh, so, you know, after thinking about it and talking it over with my family, I decided that, yeah, I've got nothing holding me back anymore. You know, I lost the rent mount on the firm now. Uh, and I, I chose to give it a shot and see what it, you know, give it a try. And once I got over there, I really realized that, you know, after a short while that that's probably where I'd ride out my career because I realized, A, weight was going to continually would be a problem for me to go back and, you know, to America and, you know, in the long, you know, long run. I mean, I started when I first went to England, I could still ride at 112. When I, in about three or four years, I moved my weight up to 115, my lightest, you know, my lightest weight. And then a couple of years later, I moved my weight up to 117. And and then the last seven or eight years I rode, the lightest I rode at was 120. So, you know, it's not that big of a, not, not that much different. But, you know, like if you can't ride at 116 or 17 here, you know, you end up losing a good mount before it ever gets to the good races. And then, you know, it's gone. Seems like you acclimated to uh, British racing really well. You won the 2000 Guineas in 1979 on tap on wood. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how did, I mean, did, did it really come that easy to you over there? Well, I got off to a really good start. You know, I got there. Um, I had a guy, a guy named Jimmy Lindley, who was an ex jockey, who was showing me around the tracks and kind of giving me hints about, you know, where to be, you know, what, to, you know, when to, you know, kind of make your move obviously the the finishes in england are all uphill you know a lot of the tracks you know finish at a slight incline so you definitely have to save some extra you know make sure you got plenty of horse or you know you don't get home um but um you know the guineas was you know obviously that was a big thing because i'd won a i'd won two or three stake races already you know before the guineas but you know they were you know grade twos or grade threes whatever but you know, to win the guineas, and I also beat a horse that was undefeated named Chris. Um, and so, you know, it was, I think people took notice, and I, to me, it was kind of um, when I felt like, you know, the, the racing public and the rate, you know, the other trainers and people started to say, you know, yeah, this kid actually is, you know, he can ride, you know, and he can ride here, you know, he's obviously adapting. So, um, yeah, that was kind of a big thing, and then, yeah, you know, we we did we kept doing well for about another you know four five four three or four weeks after that, and then our horses got the virus. So the rest of that year was pretty much a you know a, a nothing. Yeah, you know, we really hardly had any runners. Um, really, most of the time I spent playing golf because you know a lot of other trainers, although you know they noticed you know they all had riders or they. Had guys that they already had connections with. I'd get the odd ride, you know, for the other, for some other trainers, but, you know, it wasn't, you know, like I'd been around long enough. So, um, the rest of that year was kind of quiet. The next year, we also had a bit of the virus and, you know, we, we had a, you know, we had a fair share of winners, but nothing, you know, quite, you know, as good as the, I guess it was probably the third year. When I won my first race at, at Royal Ascot, and and then I started, you know, kind of getting some outside rides for a few other people, and I also kind of felt like that was about when I 
you know, really felt like I was on a level playing field because I, at that point, finally knew all the courses and knew how to ride them and, you know, was riding on a fairly even playing field with, you know, the guys that had been there for, you know, their whole life. So, yeah, and then from then on, uh, a couple of years later, I won my first championship for Barry Hills, and then I went to Henry Cecil's the next year, and we won four out of the five classic races that year. I won the Triple Crown on a filly called Oh So Sharp. Um, yeah, and then it just kept going. Obviously, some ups and downs. I had a bad fall, broke my neck. Um, I was out and missed, you know, a big, some a lot of nice winners because um, the horses all started really started running good at that, you know, right after I got hurt. But uh, you know, I had a lot of a lot of great times. I rode for a lot of, you know, great trainers, great people. Uh, I've still got a lot of great friends over there. Uh, I went back last year and you know got to see a lot of them. So, so that was a great thing. You know, it just reminded me of you know. What a what a blessed career I've had. Let's talk about one of those uh, classic winners in Slip Anchor, who won yeah. the nineteen he won the nineteen eighty five Epsom Derby, mm-hmm. and during the pro, post race uh, coverage, I watched mm-hmm. this on YouTube. You said that this was the best horse you've ever sat on. Uh, after all these years, do you do you still believe that? Mm, well, you know, um, after all these years, I I you know say that a firm was the best horse that I ever rode. But after that day, you know, I mean, on that given day, that horse was amazing, you know. Of course, you know, you can't base it, you know, greatness on one race. You know, greatness kind of has to, you know, it's like Michael Jordan, you know. Michael Jordan was great because he could adapt. He could do it, you know. He could do everything. Affirm was great because he could do everything. He he was a great two-year-old. He was a great three-year-old. He was a great four-year-old. He won from five furlongs to a mile and a half. Had slip anchor, slip anchor right after that Derby. One when when he won the Epsom Derby, he, about three weeks later in his box in his stall, they call him a box over there. Um, he got hurt. He I don't know got cast. Something happened, and he got hurt. And he was he didn't run for probably three months. And when he came back after that when he finally got back going again and he was never the same horse, you know, he, he, um, so, you know, he didn't prove to end up being the best horse, but on that, you know, obviously right after you get off of a horse that won the Epsom Derby by eight lengths and was leading by 15 lengths coming into the stretch, you feel kind of, you know, (laughs) like this could be the greatest horse I ever, I ever rode. But, you know, on hindsight, I would have to say a firm was the best, Best horse I ever rode, and probably Oso Sharp was the best filly. Oso Sharp, you said won the Philly Triple Crown. I, I'm I'm not gonna lie, I didn't know that the Philly Triple Crown was a thing until I started yeah. researching you. And that's like you said, it's the you win the 1,000 guineas, the Epsom Oaks, and then the St. Ledger, which is Boy. roughly is that a, like a mile and three quarters against it, boys. It is. You have to take on the Colts in that race. Yeah. Obviously, the the uh, guineas and the uh, the the oaks are only fillies, but when you run in the ledger to win the triple crown, you end up taking you know you have to take on the colts as well. So yeah. she beat colts in that, and uh, yeah, she um, she was just uh, she probably never should have been beaten in her life. Um, she got beaten on rock hard ground in the um, King George as a three year old taking on older horses, you know, and colts. Um, 
on on really hard ground, which he didn't like that much. And uh, at the head of the stretch, a horse that I was just lapped on to pretty much bolted for the, you know, and I had to kick by him to get, you know, and so I ended up getting to the front sooner than I would have liked. And, you know, just in the last dying stretch, this one horse kind of ran me down. And it was partly mainly because she was really not liking the ground. And, you know, like I said, I probably lost six lengths, you know, scooting around that horse sooner than I wanted to. So, and then she got beat one other time on, you know, absolute bottomless ground by a, by a St. Ledger winner, you know, a four-year-old who, you know, was big, strong, you know, plow horse, you know, he could plow through anything and she just, you know, couldn't quite handle that soft ground. But really, you know, she was just a truly, she beat Trip Teach. Yes. One, nice. Who won, who won 11 or won nine grade ones or whatever. She beat her like she was tied to a post yep. in the Oaks, in the Epsom Oaks. So, you know, that's how good she was. <clears throat> Peter Brandt, I think, eventually wound up with that, that mare. And she, mm-hmm. she shipped over here and ran in the Breeders' Cup turf yeah. at Churchill. Yeah. 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 I, I won that. two grade ones on her myself. Oh, wow. Uh, she was I, really I kind of, you know, to compare, and she was pretty special. And this, my, you know, oh, so sharp beat her like, you know. Like she was a stepchild. <laughs> right, right. So, 1978 is the year you won the Triple Crown. And then there was a long drought mm-hmm. uh, until American Pharaoh. We were talking uh, Pleasant Colony, Ali Sheba, Sunday Silence, Silver Charm, Real Quiet, Smarty Jones, Big Brown. I know I probably left out one. But uh, did you did, did you celebrate Triple Crown failures, like kind of like the 1972 Miami Dolphins Celebrated a, an NFL team getting beat? Not really, no. I mean, I think, um, you know, as early on, well, actually, the first, you know, like uh, I was, I called Chris McCarron when he was going for it and wished him good luck, you know, because I, you know, and I really did mean it, you know, I mean, like, you know, hey, it's not like you're, you know, it's one of those special uh, things that, you know, it's not many people are, you know, at that time there was 11 of us, you know, it's not like, you know, it's especially guys you like, you know, you, you, it's a special thing to be able to pull off. But as time went on, you know, it was like, God, you know, the the, the interesting thing was like, you know, I remember in 78 when we won the triple crown. So secretariat, you know, like it had been 25 years between, Citation and Secretariat. Secretariat won it in 73. Seattle Slew won it in 77. I won it in 78. And I vividly remember people saying, the Triple Crown's getting too easy. Like, <laughs> think, what the hell are you talking about? Uh-huh. And, of course, 37 years proved that it, you know, it wasn't that damn easy. But, uh, um, yeah, it just takes a special horse, an amazing horse, and you have to have things go right for you. You know, you can't afford to have you know, much go wrong or, you know, you just can't overcome it unless, you know, unless you just got a, you know, freaky good horse. Now, of course, you know, Secretariat, you know, was the best by, you know, by plenty in in his generation. And Seattle Slough was the best by plenty in his generation. And that was what was so special about 78 was you had two really great horses that came along in the same year. And it just doesn't happen very often, you know. I mean, 
uh, you know, it's uh Sunday silence and easy goer were probably the closest thing to them, you know? Right. Absolutely. That, that, in fact, that was, uh, Sunday silence was my horse. That's the, that I loved him. And that, yeah, he was. That, yeah. Was yeah. Very, really, really easy goer really hurt my feelings. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. I can but, imagine. Uh, so it, now the, the Belmont this year is going to be moved to Saratoga and going to be running a mile and a quarter. And right. there's always talk about spacing out the triple crown races. Uh, I'm, I'm certain the Preakness is going to get moved at some point. Right. Uh, are you a triple crown traditionalist or, or does th- these kind of things bother you? If, if, if they do space it out, maybe put four weeks in between each race and somebody does come along and sweep it, how, how are you going to look at that? Well, you know, it's, um, I, you know, cha- time changes things, things change, you know, but, um, yeah, I am a somewhat of a traditionalist. I, I, all I can say is, you know, it's, it ends up not being the same thing, right? It's, it's, you know, you can call it the triple get, you know, it's, um, I, yeah, but of course, I don't even know, you know, for a fact, you know, that back in when, you know, Gallant Fox and I don't know, you know, what the distance, you know, things have changed, you know, through the years. I'm not sure that every Triple Crown winner so far has won, you know, exactly at the same times and the same distances, you know. I know it's been that way for at least the last, you know, 50, 60 years, but before then, I don't really know. You know what it, what you know exactly what the triple crown you know was. I mean, I think a few horses had to win it before they even started calling it the triple crown, right? Yeah, that's right. Good point. Last question for me: Our rider, you, you rode late seventies through, uh, I think, what early nineties. Um, yeah. Are riders better now? Do you think? Or are they better in your day? Well, all I can say is I think I rode in one of the great times of, you know, great top riders. I mean, I rode against Cordero, Velasquez, Pinkai, Shoemaker, um, Ronnie Turcott, uh, Jacinto Vasquez, Eddie Maple. That was here in America. And then when I was in Europe, I was riding against, you know, Piggott, Pat Edry, Walter Swinburne, Willie Carson. In France was Yves Saint-Martin and, and, and Freddie Head. Wow. So, you know, there was a great, you know, it was a great era when I was writing. But, you know, I think this is, a, you know, there's a lot of extremely talented guys. I mean, I, you know, the the Ortiz brothers are, you know, amazing. And I think, you know, Red particularly is, you know, the guy just, you know, he's got such a will to win. And he does, horses just run for him, you know. He's got a good, you know, he really knows how to place horses and make a run at the right time, you know. And he's, as you, you know, I, I mean, I... I'm all about taking every, you know, opportunity that you can to win. And, you know, as long as you're not putting guys at risk. And, you know, I think, you know, when, when you're riding like him, you know, sometimes the, the, the fine line between that is, you know, sometimes hard to, you know, you don't, you know, you're not really, I don't think he ever is really trying to put anybody in danger. It's just, you know, sometimes things happen and, in horse races, um, but you know, I, I I have to, you know, I have a lot of respect for how he rides, you know, and um, you know, there's you know Rosario and um, you know, the, like I said, the Ortiz brothers, you know, and some young guys that are coming up, and you know, 
uh, Axel Concepcion and, uh, you know, some of the, uh, Gaffleon, you know, or, uh, yeah, Tyler Gaffleon. I mean, you know, he's a hell of a rider, you know, these right. guys are just, you know, they're, they're very good. And, you know, there's always, you know, like say when you've got, uh, especially when you got this kind of money to run for these days, I mean, like, you know, you're going to have people trying to, you know, trying to be the top. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I admire these guys. I think racing's changed somewhat, you know, the, um, yeah, and the, the sad, like the problem out in California, well, Pratt, you know, another really good guy. I mean, that guy is always, he's always in the right place, you know, he's, you know, he, he plays positions his horses so well and just, you know, they run for him. But, um, um, you know, things are always different. Like back when I was, you know, California, I mean, like, you know, it's, it's so sad to see, you know, a big field is seven horses, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, it's just like, you know, the racing out there is really, you know, diminished. I mean, not, you know, there's still good horses and obviously Baffert and, you know, the, there's some good rate, there's some excellent races, but it's just, you know, sad to see it, you know, kind of shrink so much, you know, and just kind of not everybody wants to go there, but that's part of that's because of it's so hard to, you know, with all the laws and the, you know, you got extra costs out there, you know, that make it difficult to, to, to you know, guys like Wayne Lucas, you know, come back here because it's, you know, it's just so expensive to be a trainer out there. Well, Alan, I think I'm satisfied. I got to talk <laughs> to a living legend, and now we're going to throw back to another living legend, Alan Schneider. Take it away. I'm not quite in Steve's class, but I appreciate the compliment there, brother. Um, a <laughs> couple things real quick before we let you go, Steve. Um, synthetic at Turfway. You, you, you live near Turfway. You spend a lot of time at Turfway. I think you've, you've worked with Turfway mm-hmm. a lot. I did. If you was a rider today, I mean, with how would that synthetic, how would that Tapita work for you? Do you like it? Do you think you'd handle it? Uh, I'm a fan of it personally, but what do you think? Well, you know, it's, um, it's like everything, you know, yeah. I mean, I guess, in some respects, it certainly seems to be, you know, better for the horses, you know, for their, um, on their legs and just, uh, you know, causing less injuries. Um, it seems to me, if anything, it, it, you know, it pulls horses, you know, fields together. I mean, you get so many fields that, you know, there's five horses on the line, you know, or, you know, mm-hmm. within the line of each other. And, you know, so, um, it's kind of like my filly the other night, you know, uh, yes, last night. I mean, like on a dirt track, the way she was looking at the head of the lane, she's home, home and hose. And then all of a sudden, all out of the blue, you know, comes this thing plowing down the middle of the track, you know. And, um, so, you know, it, it, yeah, I think it's it's definitely different. It's, you know, um, but, yeah, I mean, I think it's got, it's got its place, and it's certainly um, – you know, been good at Turfway because, you know, winter racing's tough. And I mean, even that you can't race on when it gets too, too cold. Cause, you know, it's, uh, but, you know, I think in general, um, you know, it's, it certainly has its place. And I, I see like what they've done at Gulfstream where they've got, you know, a dirt track, they've got a turf track, and then they've got an all weather track where, you know, when a turf race is, you know, when it's too wet to run on the turf. You can move it to the all weather and you don't lose half the field, you know. Right. You lose a couple horses. So yeah, I mean, you know, I'm 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 fine with all weather. In fact, all weather really began over in Europe and I 
worked horses on the all weather all the time. You know, they had all weather, you know, uh, gallops and, uh, you know, it was, it was, we always thought it was great, but you know, racing on it, you know, is obviously different than racing on turf or dirt. It's its own thing, but, um, you know, it, uh, it's got its place, I'm sure. And, you know, I think the Tapita is, you know, without a doubt, the best surface that they've had, you know, that they've come up with. Mm-hmm. You know, any of the other ones, for one reason or another, heat seems to really, you know, I remember when they first had it done in, a, I can't remember, Remington, I think it was. And Remington had, a, I can't remember what they even called that track. You know, it was it was an all-weather surface of, um and the first year that they had it, everybody loved it, you know. And the second year was still pretty popular. By the third year, because of those hot summers, that thing like just melted and it totally changed. And all of a sudden, everybody, the horses were getting hurt on it and nobody liked it. And that's what, you know, then um, they went back to dirt, you know. And so, you know, I think it's it, uh, like in Woodbine up in, Cal- uh, in Canada, it probably is better there. Because they, you know, it probably doesn't ever get quite as hot, maybe even in the summer up there as it does, you know, down south here in, you know, in the 48 states of, you know, of the United States. And uh, heat is, seems to be what really harms the surface. Um, before I ask you the last question, you want to mm-hmm. give a shout to your, you want to give a shout to your wife? I know you got three daughters. What are their names? Yeah. Uh, my wife's name is Amy, um, and my daughter's names are Ka- Caitlin, Carly, and Kelsey. And our mutual friend tells me, is one of them trying to get on Broadway? Is that what I understand? Is that what I heard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, uh, she's actually, actually, um, she's doing a show on Cruise Line right now, but, you know, mainly to get some experience. So eventually she hopefully will be able to, you know. What Cruise it. Line? I'm going on a cruise oh. in three weeks. Which Cruise right. Line? The cruise line, it's, it's, um, it's, uh, which one is it? Uh, it's Royal Caribbean, is it? It's not Royal Caribbean. It's, Damn, I would have said hi. It's, uh, but anyway, it's, it's, a uh, it's going from Cali, from, from LA down the coast of Mexico to different okay. stuff, you know, and then well, we, back. We cruise a lot. I, maybe we'll see her one day, but I hope she gets the, I hope she gets in the great yeah. right way. That'd be awesome. Yeah. That'd be amazing. Yeah. yeah. So it's All fun, right. to, fun to dream. So, so now we we touched on the fact that you're your your celebrity status from back in the day, right in the seventies. So before we go, with before we got on air, I think I compared you as like the David Cassidy of horse racing back in the day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then as I make this little off off topic joke, you hung out with David Cassidy and, and other people as part of your celebrity status. Uh, give mm-hmm. me a little something of that there, real quick. Well, David Cassidy, you know, he obviously. He was, the, you know, the Partridge family. It was he was the big, you know, teenage heartthrob uh, of the of the, my time, and uh, he, um, but he loved racing and he got into racing. So we met and I got to know him when we were in England, and uh, so uh, he, you know, we became friends. And I was uh, I was going to have a party. My my the, the, I lived in the Gate Cottage on. The, in the state, uh, and I'd, I'd asked the the uh, owner of the estate, uh, my buddy, you know, guy, you know, who obviously invited me to stay there. I said, I I really want to have a party. So he said, Yeah, let's do that. And uh, 
we were having this big party and uh i said to david you know we'd love you to sing at our party and he said well i'd love to steve but i'm gonna be in in the states you know at this time so you know so i said well you know hey you know do you know anybody else that maybe i could get and he said well you know this guy that guy elton i, I said what, what what hang on you mean elton John? <laughs> he said yeah he said you know he might do it just send him an invitation you know send him an invite and you know you know, he, he he probably would like that. You know, I said, well, okay. So I sent him an invitation, and um, about three weeks later, I get a call, and this person called, you know, says, hello, you know, this is uh, Elton John's secretary. You know, Elton, Mr. John would love to come to your party. Uh, his, his only request is that, you know, do you mind if he flies his helicopter in? Oh, my I God. Said, I said, hell no, bring him on. <laughs> so anyway, it was, it turned out to be a great party and he sang at our, he sang, a, got up and sang a couple songs at our party and it, you know, people are still talking about it to this day. I mean, you get to hang out with Elton John. I think you, and you told me Roger Waters of, yeah, uh, Roger was Pink a, Floyd. Yeah, mm-hmm. I get to hang out with Jeff Riggs and Brandon Jaggers and CeCe. I mean, yeah, well, you win, you win that round, buddy. Well, <laughs> that that is uh, awesome. Just I've been blessed with a very uh, lucky life. <laughs> you really have, and it's something to be proud of. And you, as you sit back as we start to get older and stuff to look back, it's like it's been a pretty good life, hasn't it, Steve? Yeah, I'm not complaining. Not complaining yeah. at all. Well, so. I'll tell you what. We we I, I speak for CC. We thank you so much for coming on. We've been. Uh, I mean, we're older, so we remember your heyday. So this has been yeah. a. It's not every day you get to talk to a Hall of Famer in any sport, especially uh, perhaps our favorite sport. So the fact that you honored us with your presence tonight was uh, truly appreciated, sir. Truly appreciated, and it's been wonderful. CC, correct? Absolutely. It's like, yeah, this is an honor, no doubt. It's well, a perk of doing this. Fun, fun to relive some of the the fun times. Well, we appreciate it, Steve, and uh, maybe we can talk to you again in the future. Okay. Absolutely. Great to Thank talk you, to you. Steve. All right, that was one of the most famous jockeys of all time, Steve Coffin, and the Auxiliary Gate podcast has peaked. I don't <laughs> think we could, can we do any better than that? Uh, probably not. Uh, can you come up with somebody that we've had? I mean, you know, we, we've had some famous people on here, but uh, that guy was that guy was the stuff back in the day, right? Back in the, that's a little bit before my time. Yeah. My first memories of horse racing go back to maybe eighty one, eighty two. I vaguely remember the late seventies with 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 the firm Denaladar, but I was about eight years old, so um, pretty impressive stuff, right? They, uh, if you go to YouTube, there's a American Express commercial that he did back in I, I assume seventy eight, seventy nine, something like that. Don't leave home without it. You remember those? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was uh, he did one of those. That was pretty cool. But he mentioned Robert Sangster. Robert Sangster is the the gentleman that brought him over or enticed him to come over. You you have any idea? Well, he had several claims claims to fame. Do you know one of them that involves buying horses in Kentucky? It sounds very familiar, and I can, for the life of me, I cannot remember what it is. He purchased Seattle Dancer, who well, I believe, No, no, no. Now Seattle Dancer was a son of Dijinsky the second, out of a out of the mother of Seattle Slough. Okay. $13.1 million. 
at, at that point was yes. an all-time record for a yearling. $13.1 million, and that horse didn't turn out to be much. <laughs> I do remember that part about it, yes. And I think Sangster may have had something to do with Coolmore, getting Coolmore started uh, with uh, Mac, John Magner and that bunch. So, yeah, there's, there's your uh, there's your ties to Kentucky there. But uh, I also found out that the Leonidas Stakes is going to be run next Friday night. Oh, I'll have to keep an eye out for that. Yeah, I like that make, race. I'd like to go up there. Yeah, I need to, I do need to get up there. That, sure. And I'm going to be busy in the middle of February and stuff, so my time's getting a little limited. So I might have to look into that. might look into that. We'll say hi to Steve. He hangs up there a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll hunt him down. That'd be fun. Mm-hmm. That was you a great it. It's a great interview. I enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, and looking forward to the next one. So uh, anything else you want to add before we sign off? I just I will affirm your uh, take on the on the interview. He's great. See what I did there? That was nice. Hey, uh, all right, one more one more fun factoid. Alidar, you know where that name came from? I do not believe it or not. I don't. The owner of Alidar, Mrs. Wright, and I think she eventually became Mrs. Markey. They would have Prince Ali Khan out to the farm to hang out. And, you know, she would refer to him as, oh, Ali, darling, Ali, darling, Ali, dar, Ali, dar. That's what Ali, dar. Alan, dar. Alan Adele is what. Uh, that's where that came from? I didn't know that. Ali, dar, right? Prince Ali mm-hmm. Khan. There you go. I heard well, he was a fantastic lover back in the day as well. You don't get that type of stuff on other podcasts. Nope. If there are any other horse racing podcasts, I don't know if there are any other ones. All right. All right. <laughs> All right. That's it for now. So we'll sign off on behalf of Jeff Riggs, who's stroking his beard, and another great lover, Brandon Jaggers, who's not with us this evening. And, of course, on behalf of our fantastic guest, Steve Cawthon. I can't believe I just said that. It's weird coming out of my mouth. But then, uh, and also on behalf of the living legend himself, Alan Schneider, I'm CC Broadus, reminding you, in the words of our spiritual leader, Jerry Romans, we're not happy unless you're not happy. Good night.